Church family, it's good to see you. Hopefully you're having a wonderful uh, November. It is November now, just in case you were wondering. It may or may not feel like November, but uh, it, it is what it is here. Uh, several months back, church family, we, as, as I began, we were, we were walking through the book of Daniel at that time, and I began really uh, seeking and praying through, Lord, where, where do you have us to go next? And, and at that same time, we knew that the, the celebration of 50 years of the Lord's faithfulness in and through the church uh, was coming up, and, and it presented uh, exactly what we've talked about, a time to uh, certainly celebrate what God has done in and through us for 50 years, but also to allow the Lord to evaluate us, to examine us, for us to uh, be held up to His light and to say, Lord, are, are we at 50 years old? Are we where You desire us to be? Are we, are we living with the heart You desire for us to live with, doing the ministry You desire us to do? And, and we understand, church family, that when we say and do that as a church, what we're ultimately doing is doing that as individuals. Our church body is made up of us as individual believers collectively. And so as, as, we, as I prayed through that, the Lord uh, put my focus and, and, and stirred my heart towards the beginning of Revelation. You've got these letters to seven real churches, but, but the issues facing each one of those churches are issues that continue to face uh, churches and believers to this day. And so we've spent the last 10 weeks walking through Revelation 1, this picture, this revelation, this incredible reality of who Jesus is. He, he's the one we belong to. He's the one we're about. And then you see as Jesus deals with each one of these churches and, and, and calls them to overcome in, in differing areas. He calls the church in Ephesus to, to love Him firstly. They've gotten sidetracked by the good things. They've got good doctrine. They've got good ministry. They're being faithful to do it, but they love all of that more than they love Jesus. So he calls them to overcome and write love. You've got the church in Smyrna, which is just suffering, is, is, is it living in abject poverty and suffering deeply, and he calls them to overcome by being faithful. You've got the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira who, who, are, who are a mixed, uh, mixed sense of faithfulness. There are some who are faithful, but both of those churches are being tempted and are faltering to compromise doctrine and morality biblically, and he calls them to overcome by being faithful. You move into a church like Sardis, which has a reputation for being alive but is living dead, and he calls them not to live off their reputation but to, to guard against spiritual deadness and to live out life. The church in Philadelphia, he calls them to overcome. You have little power, but, but be faithful. You got the church in Laodicea we looked at last week, which was some of the certainly strongest and most visual language that, that we can have. He calls them to be effective and, and useful for the kingdom by being either hot or cold, not lukewarm. And all of these messages, they, we, we, are, we as a church, we as believers are exposed, are held up. We allow the Lord to speak to us, and the call in all of it is to overcome. And I realize as we have walked through this, this call, this challenge to us happens in the midst of a real world happens in the midst of a real world where there is real temptation to capitulate from any one of those things. Happens in a real world where we live in a time and a day and a place where every issue in our culture, whether it's eternally significant or not, we are polarized in extremes. 
some extremes of which might be okay, some of which extremes are. And we, we live in the midst of a world, and as I sat just weeks ago uh, in the hospital with a mixture of emotion looking at my newborn son filled with love and hopes and dreams while at the same time following on the phone as everything is breaking in Israel and, and the tension and, and just the sorrow of what's taking place and, and the frightening reality. And, and, and maybe I'm the only one that in the midst of all of this finds the temptation that there is a real temptation and in the face of the call to overcome, there's a real temptation to despair, a real temptation to discouragement, a real temptation to get sidetracked by the unbelievable amount of sorrowful information that's taking place from every corner and all while trying to make sure you've got the right money and the right account to pay the bills on time and just put food on the table. There are some of this in this room, I have no doubt, if you are older, there, there's, there's an added sorrow in your heart because you've seen how much the world you knew has changed. For some who are younger in this room, it's tough to hear all of the doom and gloom because you, as a young person, have hopes and dreams and aspirations and you desire what any normal person desires, which is to live a joyful, long life. And in the midst of all that realness, we are called to overcome. Now, I give you a long intro to simply say, so what's the key? How, how, we know that we're going to overcome. The power to overcome is in the blood of Jesus. We know that. We've seen that. But I realize as we've continued working through some stuff on Wednesday nights that really there's more to the key to overcoming than just where we stop at chapter 3. So this week and next week, we're going to move a little bit further. So I invite you to turn with me, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And as you come there, listen, listen with me. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And after these things, I look, remember this is John the Apostle, he's exiled in his 80s on the island of Patmos uh, for uh, the, the witness and ministry he has to Jesus at the Word. He says, after these things, uh, I looked and behold, there was a door which had been opened in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So here's the scene. John has been, if we remember back to chapter 1, he is, he is in a personal time of worship on the island of Patmos where he's exiled. He hears behind him the voice like a trumpet, the voice of Jesus. And Jesus proceeds to reveal himself. We've got this revelation of Jesus in chapter 1. And then chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has, uh, dictates to John to write these letters to the seven churches. And after these things, after those letters have been written, addressing the churches, uh, John all of a sudden looks and he doesn't see the door open, but when he looks up into the sky, he sees that there has been a doorway that, that someone has opened for him which leads into heaven. And by heaven, uh, we don't mean heaven in terms of the sky where the birds fly or space where the stars shine. We mean heaven, that place where God chooses to reside in His glory, where the angels praise, where those who are in Christ, when they, their bodies die, their souls go to be with the Lord. Into this heaven, there's a door open, and He hears Jesus' voice uh, command Him, come up, get up here. 
and I'm gonna show you what must, what, what is absolutely necessary, what is required to take place after these things, meaning I've shown you who I am, we've written letters to the churches where they're at, and I am telling you come up here because I am going to show you what is coming, and not just what is coming, but what must come. There's no option here, John, I'm gonna show you. So this is the scene as John goes up, and here's what he sees, what he describes for us. He says, immediately, I was in the Spirit, meaning John's body's still there on Patmos, but he's been caught up uh, in his Spirit. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one who is presently and continuously sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance, and there was a, a rainbow, uh, a halo around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, let me just give you the language. He says, behold, I saw in the midst of heaven there was a throne standing. Not a throne had been standing, not a place where a throne would be standing, but a place where the throne is standing. It's there. It's not cracked. It's not wobbly. It's secure. There's a throne for all heaven and earth. And good news, that throne, which is, is clearly there, I means someone's in charge, I saw someone sitting on it. Not someone who was coming to sit, not debate about who would replace the last person who sat there, but someone who is presently, continuously sitting on the throne. And by the way, sitting is a, is a middle voice. You go, well, what's that matter, Pastor? I'll tell you why it matters, because when an action is in the middle voice, you yourself are the one who does the action. So the one sitting on the throne is sitting on the throne by his own power and volition, meaning no one else enthrones him, he enthrones himself. There's one sitting on the throne. Now we know who the one sitting on the throne is. It's the Lord God Almighty. But then he proceeds to describe the, the appearance of the one on the throne, and he mentions Jasper, which to, to you and I, maybe the closest thing we would think is a diamond-like crystalline rock, a, a really clear, pure, uh, translucent rock. And then he mentions stone sardis, sardius in appearance. Think the color of, of ruby red. And whether it was a rainbow just in a semicircle or whether it was in fact hovering above a rainbow in a full circle, there was a rainbow which was emerald in color. Now some have looked in and, and said these things mean different things. The, 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 the diamond-like appearance would, would be purity and the ruby red-like appearance would be God's justice, His judgment. The rainbow, certainly we know what that's an Im image of. It's a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness, that he, he will in fact do what He says He will do. He is loyal to His Word. The emerald in color, some have said, is referencing God's mercy. And while we may somewhat speculate at the precise meaning of all of it, what John is doing is he's painting a picture that if you and I were to see, it is a sight of glorious splendor and beauty which cannot be described precisely. So John just says, this is, this is the closest I can get to help you understand what it looked like. Said, and around this throne there were 24 thrones, and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning, and the sounds were peals of thunder. 
And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, like a sea of glass-like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, meaning near and by the throne and surrounding the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had a a face uh, of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So here's what John continues to describe for us. Here's the throne, the one sitting on the throne, enthroned, whose glory is radiating in this beautiful diamond and ruby and and emerald, uh, glorious beauty, who's, who's surrounded by a rainbow, speaking of his faithfulness. And before this, or around this throne, there's 24 thrones, the 24 elders. We'll see them again more next week, and there's all sorts of robust debate on who precisely they are. We'll establish that more next week. What simply you need to understand is the 24 elders are, are representative of redeemed humanity, God's people. It gives you a description, white robes, uh, victor's crowns would be the precise term for crown there, and We'll see what they do with that in a moment. So here, here, are, here are these representatives, 24 thrones. By the way, there were 24 divisions of the Levitical priesthood. There's 12 tribes of Judah and 12 apostles, which summarize the Old and New Testament. There's all sorts of things that go with 24, but these 24 elders surround the throne. And not only that, before the throne, it says there were seven lamps, which are the seven spirits of God. We've seen this language before in chapter 1. It's brought over into Revelation from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and it is, it is a symbolic imagery to describe before the throne of God is the Holy Spirit, God himself. Say, well, why seven spirits? It's not seven different spirits, seven spirits. Seven is the number for perfection, completeness. It's the divine number. The Holy Spirit is the one who is perfectly God. He's perfect in divinity, perfect in holiness. The Holy Spirit is perfectly God, and the Holy Spirit is the one who shines the light and glory of the God. Who is, who is this? We're called the light of the world. Well, who how do we shine the light of God? Not because we possess it, but because the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation indwells us. Hence the imagery of the seven torches. It says not only this, but from the throne itself, there came sights and flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. It brings imagery to mind of a powerful thunderstorm rolling through and the way in which when you hear, uh, just like we did the other day, lightning hit right outside the church office the other day, And I don't know that I have ever heard a thunderclap that loud and instantaneous, and it caused all the power to flicker, right? There is a power and majesty that come with it. There's power and majesty coming from God Himself, and and around all of this, you've got these strange beings, the four living creatures, which if you're a Bible trivia buff, you'll recognize there's similarities from these creatures and and the, the creatures described in the book of Ezekiel that he later goes on to call cherubim. You'll also notice that there's some unique differences between these and Ezekiel's cherubim. You might also say, well, these have, these have six wings. 
And, and the song they sing, it makes me think of the six-winged seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 who day and night are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You dig in and you, and you find there's all sorts of, you know, why, why does one have the appearance of a lion, uh, one an ox, one a man, one, one an eagle? What, what's, what's the meaning of that? And I can tell you it's, it's a rabbit hole that'll take you deep, church family. There's lots of opinions. Simply put, what is most clearly seen is there is a way in which these four living beings are reflective of all of creation. And they are doing what all of creation was intended and purposed to do, which is to declare and praise the glory of God day and night. These mighty and powerful beings, and they cry out and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is to come. And when John hears them do this, he sees something else. Look at with me, verse 9. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders on those 24 thrones, they will fall down. And by fall down, we don't simply mean they will, they will casually scoot off their chair and, and, and put the, flip the kneelers out from the pew in front of them and get on the kneelers. It means they prostrated themselves flat. In worship, surrender, and adoration, they fell down. And they worshiped, they ascribed worthiness to Him. And they cast their crowns, those victors' crowns on their head, those victors' crowns that symbolize and are a reward for faithfulness, those victors' crowns which are only theirs by grace not because they earned or deserved them, Jesus bought those crowns. Those victors' crowns which they wear, which were handed to them, they rightfully lay down before the one to whom they belong and to whom their glory is due. And as the 24 elders prostrate themselves in worship, laying their crowns down, they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed, meaning they, they, are, they are continuing to exist, and they were created. Because of, because of your will, because of your power, you, they were in your mind, you brought them into being, you have caused all things to exist, and they continue to exist solely by your will and the word of your power. Worthy are you, Lord God, for you are God, you are the creator, you are worthy. Before anything else comes in the book of Revelation, before any, any of the really crazy stuff that we've seen on some of our Wednesday night Bible studies comes, here John is caught into heaven, into the very throne room of God, where he sees in the midst of his exile as churches are suffering, as the world faces chaos no different than today, a throne that is secure and someone who is so mighty and powerful himself, he enthrones himself seated securely on it. And he tells us as we walk through, as we walk through this scene, there's, there's five clear aspects of who God is that come out. One, God is glorious. This is John's description of the diamond-like, ruby-like, emerald-like glory that's, come, that's, that's radiating from God. He's, he's glorious. Church family, God's glory is beyond description. 
John cannot actually describe with human words what he is seeing of God's glory. All he can do is say, hey, this is, this is the closest thing in my mind I can tell you it seemed like. Not only is his glory beyond description, his glory is, is might and is, is majestic and powerful. The imagery of flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. Church family, have you ever, I, I, one time on a mission trip, we were up in the mountains, and all of a sudden it sounded like cannonballs going off. And I quickly realized we were high enough up that you could actually see the thunderstorm roll into the valley. It was unbelievable for someone from central Texas to, who, who there, a mountain is a, a mound of sand at the park. But I will never forget sitting there, the, the might, the majesty, the power, the feeling of smallness at the might of the thunderstorm. Well, the feeling of smallness that you and I might have before the most vicious of thunderstorms is nothing compared to the feeling of smallness before a God from, who, from whose throne comes flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. His glorious is mighty. It's grand. It's big. It's overwhelming. See, before we get caught up in who are all the elders and who are all these beatings, do, do, do you catch? We, we have all these questions, these wonderings, who are these glorious beings that John is seeing in heaven and, and we can miss the point if we get too caught up. Here are these glorious beings that astound our minds and what are they doing? They are transfixed by the glory of God. They are caught up entirely in the glory of God. They are, in a healthy way, terrified by the glory of God. It captures the attention of all the supernatural. See, church family, God is glorious. He is big. He is powerful. He is glorious. We find that He's glorious. We see they, they declare these beings that He is holy, holy, holy. God is Holy, and, and, and the term holy, our minds probably instantly jump to he is righteous and pure, and certainly that is a part of holiness. But the actual base definition of holiness is to be unique, distinct. It's to be separate. It is because something has been separated from that which is unclean, that it then reflects purity and righteousness. When we say that God is holy, we're not just simply saying He's morally pure and without fault. We, we are saying that, but it's even more than that. God being a holy being means He is unique, He is distinct, He is separate from all creation. In fact, when you come to faith in Christ, there is an aspect of Christ's holiness we share, His righteousness. But there is another aspect of God's holiness that we will never share because fundamentally, we are always going to be created. He is Creator who is uncreated. He's holy. He's not like us. He's not bound like us. He's not simply the better, best version of humanity. Anything good in humanity is a reflection of Him, not He a reflection of us. 
And when it says holy, 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 it's pulling from the Old Testament Hebrew a a triple of repetition, which might be this. God is not just holy, he's most holy. But he's not just most holy, he is perfectly and infinitely holy. You cannot be more holy. Holy, holy, holy. Not only that, but our God is a triune being, three in one. The Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Spirit is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. He is holy. He is almighty. What do we mean by almighty? It speaks to God's power. And you notice there, it doesn't just say the Lord God Almighty, the Almighty. He's not just the one who has some power. He He is the power. He has all power. We use the term omnipotent. God does not just possess some power, and God does not just possess more power than than the rest of creation possesses. God possesses all power. And whatever power there is is because God, God possesses it. And by virtue of having all power, do you know what great news this is, church family? God cannot be sovereign if he lacks power. Because he has all power, God is sovereign. God is seated on his throne, not because we ascribed or set him on the throne, because he himself sat there, and he can sit there because he alone is holy, and he has all the power. He's almighty. What a, what a joyful reality. Regardless of all the different theologians who, d- who give the various uh, interpretations of Revelation, uh, anybody who believes Jesus is Lord all has the same agreement that throughout the book of Revelation, the dominant theme is the fact that the Lord God is the one who is the sovereign ruler of all creation and history. Because He is the Almighty, He has the power, He is secure in His rule, church family. The fact that our world seems to to be flirting right now with World War III, which will be a war unlike anything else this world has ever seen, doesn't change the fact that for what is insecure to us, God's, God's not panicked in heaven. In fact, He's very comfortable sitting in His throne where He's sat this whole time. He's secure in His rule. He alone is the ruler. He is in control. It was Corey Tinboom. whose family died in Nazi concentration camps. She was alone, made it out. They hid Jews in their house. It was her who said, there's no panic in heaven. There's no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. He is almighty. Not only is He almighty, it says He is eternal, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. God is the one who has no beginning. Now, now catch me, I, I didn't say He, he ha- has no ending. He has no beginning, and He has no ending. In fact, not only, when we say God is eternal, it means time cannot even describe God because God created time. You and I can't fathom existence outside of time. We know that we have no end. We know for those of us in Christ, the fact that we have no end means we will spend forever and ever and ever in the presence of God in the new heaven and new earth. But we all had a beginning. We don't know what it's like to to not be bound by time. God holds time in His hand. He has no beginning. He has no end. He reveals Himself as the eternally present, the I Am. He is the God of the old. 
He is the God of the young. There is no one who can outstart Him, and there is no one church family who will outlast Him. He is the sovereign God of history. And as John writes this and writes to churches that are suffering, powerless, under the hands of of powerful rulers that they have no say in who holds those offices or not, he makes clear to them, you understand, believers, that God being the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come is a clear indictment. Every ruler you face, they had a beginning. They may be present right now, but they will have an end. They are not sovereign. The rural leaders of our day are not sovereign over world history. They may get a little bit of a leash to make some decisions that'll be written in the history books, but they have a beginning, and mark my words, church family, they will have an end because God alone is eternal. We find that God is glorious, that God is holy, that God is almighty, that God is eternal, and we find in the cry of the elders that God is creator. He is creator. Now, ponder with me for a moment. Isn't, you go, wow, look at this grand vision of heaven, God's glory. Just maybe it's me. It's, it's strange. Here we are in Revelation, this big grand moment. Here are these big things, and all of a sudden, they're praising Him because He is creator. That He is creator. What do we mean that He is creator? Well, we know creation exists because of God. It was in God's mind, and in His will, He brought it about. By the way, if He didn't have all power, He couldn't bring about creation. Or he could only bring out about a very flawed version of creation. We know creation remains because God sustains it. It says elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus sustains creation by the word of his power. We know that creation, Romans 1, reveals certain aspects of God's character. We know from the Psalms that creation declares the glory and praise of God. And this statement from the elders is is very similar to another passage of Scripture we've seen from Daniel chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar, coming out of his craziness, ascribes praise to God, and, and the language of, of worshiping God as creator is such to say that God isn't just creator from whom all creation gets its existence, but God as creator is who gives creation value, purpose, direction, and God's purposes for creation will not be thwarted. When we see that God is creator, we understand, one, He's different than His creation, and as one who is holy and separate from His creation, He takes a delight in His creation. God didn't create because someone was twisting His hand. Do you realize that, church family? God didn't create because He was lonely. He had perfect fellowship with Himself. God created, and He called it good out of sheer joy. There's a delight He takes in creation. He gives creation value. Let's be more specific. He gives us value. Our value is we've been made in His image, unique from all other aspects of creation, seen and unseen. He gives us our purpose to know Him, to walk with Him. He gives us our identity. Here's the problem, and this is a hint for where we're going next week. The problem is not that God is creator and He gives all these things. The problem is we have a broken relationship with creation as human beings. We have a broken relationship. Our relationship with creation is one where suffering and weakness is is real. We have a broken relationship. Our sin makes creation fearful. 
Listen, the things we all fear most in life are all aspects of creation. Just think about it for a second. Are you afraid World War III is about to break out? Well, every gun, every bomb, every person involved in it is creation. Are you afraid of sicknesses that could hit your body? Well, it's all part of this world which has been created and broken. Come up with whatever. Are you afraid to get in your car and get hit? It's all, we all fear. Everything we fear is something that ultimately is created, broken, but created. Our sin breaks our relationship with creation. Not only that, but it breaks it in such a way that we make creation idolatrous. Romans 1 is clear that all of creation should cause us to look and see and, and search out the God who made it, but instead we have worshipped the creation and not the Creator. Because you see, you and I won't acknowledge the Lord as Redeemer if we're not also willing to understand and accept He is the Creator. Creation came before redemption. God is Creator, church family. Now you say, why all this cry of praise? You say, well, Pastor, you said this is supposed to help us overcome. Instead, uh, this is great. God's big. God's glorious. God's almighty. God's holy. God's, God's Creator. God's eternal, and there's some really weird creatures in heaven that I don't understand. Do you catch the picture, church family? Jesus says, John, come up here. I'm going to show you what must happen. I'm going to show you the things that are coming, which are worse than anything you've even endured. But before we even get to any of that, I want you to see into the throne room of heaven, John. I want you to see as you write these churches and as these churches are going to take out that letter and they're going to read it and they're going to hear my evaluation of where they're at and, and hear my call to overcome. I, I want to sweep them up into the throne room of heaven. Where in the throne room of heaven there is an almighty, sovereign, holy God firmly seated on his throne where there are beings that would, that would cause us to, to recoil in terror should they reveal themselves in this moment, all of whom at the glory of who God is and at the glory of what God does, they prostrate themselves in worship. You see, the key, church family, is worship. The key is worship. What, what do I mean by worship? Worship in terms of the English word is, is just simply a word that means to ascribe worthiness to another. Worship throughout Scripture is always a response to God revealing Himself. It's God who made the first move, church family. We wouldn't worship Him if He didn't first create us. We wouldn't worship Him as Lord and Savior if He didn't take the initiative to redeem us. It's our response to Him, and as we respond to Him, it's only possible to worship Him. Jesus said in John 4, the only way one can worship God is in spirit and in truth, meaning you can't worship God rightly if you're not in a, a, a proper spiritual relationship with Jesus, which is only possible by grace through faith, not by birth, not by work. Worship ultimately then inside of a real personal relationship with God is a response of humble adoration and submission. Worship may involve our emotions, but it's not exclusively emotional. It should be the primary focus when the church gathers. As one person said it, when we gather for worship together, church family, it should be a dress rehearsal for Revelation 4 and 5. Not a box to check off our list. 
We know that worship isn't, though, just coming together and singing songs. Worship, Romans 12 says, is, is a way of life, to present my body a living sacrifice. This is my spiritual and acceptable form of worship. We worship as we pray. We worship as we live. We worship as we sing. We worship as we think. We worship as we act. We worship as we listen to the, to the word. We, we worship through the, the reading of scripture. We worship through church discipline, through baptism, the Lord's Supper. All of these are ways we worship. Well, why do we worship? Well, the answer simple. He's worthy. He's worthy of our worship, church family. We don't worship because we came up with some grand idea. We worship because he's worthy. But understand why worship is important and why we, why we lock in on this today. Because I know most good church people, we know he's worthy. We'd say, oh yeah, God's worthy. Here's the reality, church family. What we worship will drive our life. What we worship, we will follow, and we follow what we worship. What we worship is what we focus on, and we focus on what we worship. What we worship, who we worship, determines the manner of our lives. Worship is what will drive the, the passion and purity of our witness. It is what will inspire the, the passion of our, our work for Christ. It is worship which informs that. Yet oftentimes, we will talk of how to witness, we will talk of how to work, but rarely do we talk of what does it mean to worship church family. To worship. Heaven is a place of worship. Worship both informs, uh, is, is informed by our faith, our resting securely on his word, and it informs our faith where, where worship exists, where the, the, the all-consuming, wrapped-up devotion with the worthiness of God exists in our hearts. That is the place, brother and sister, according to Colossians 3. That is the place where our minds and our eyes are set on the things above. That is the place where we will know His power and freedom in our lives. It's in a posture of worship. So the question becomes, church family, where is our worship? Where is our worship? We worship jobs, money, wealth, Stuff, celebrities, influencers, sports, politics, the news. Think of all of those things. How much in a given day or week did those things occupy your mind compared to the worship of God? How many of those things dictate the action I take before who God is at what he says? Listen, parents, we will parent out of what we worship. Worship will determine the choices we make with how to parent our children. Friends, you got friends in the room? The kind of friend you will be will be dictated by the way you worship. Are you married or wanting to be married in the room? The kind of spouse you will be will be dictated by the way and who and the way in which you worship. Church family, the priorities we will have as a church, the things we will be willing to follow God to do will be determined strictly by who and what we worship. This is the scene in heaven. Here is this scene in heaven where beings more glorious than us are enraptured and consumed by the glory and greatness of the sovereign almighty God. Yet how many times in our churches are we judging our churches and complaining about was the music too fast or the music too slow? Was the seat comfy or not comfy? Did the coffee bar have the coffee I like or not? Meanwhile, this is the scene in heaven. 
Now, don't mistake. I, I don't care what your preference of music is. I mean, I don't care. I'm great with you to have whatever preference of church music you like. I'm great if you like the coffee out there, and I'm great if you don't like it. I don't drink any of it because coffee's gross. <laughs> if you like the pew you sit on, great, and if you don't, I, I'm not saying you cannot have a personal opinion. What I'm saying is we do not exist as a church for the glorification and worship of our opinions. We exist as a church for one reason alone, for the glory and worship of God Almighty, which means we must recognize who He is. He's holy. He's worthy. He's not like me. He's perfect in His holiness. He's pure and righteous. It means, church family, when it comes to worshiping Him for His holiness, He won't do you wrong. He's glorious. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our surrender and submission. It means this, church family, when a matter of worship, when, when, when following Jesus, whether you're a teenager or an adult, when you know what, what you should do to follow Jesus in worship is going to cost you, the fact that He is glorious means this. When it's all said and done, you won't be disappointed what it cost you. We worship Him because He's almighty. It means, church family, we have to live lives like God is actually in control. Because the easiest way to get out of suffering is to compromise. He's eternal, means He doesn't grow faint or grow weary. Some of you in this room, you've walked with God for a long time and you are feeling faint and weary, physically and spiritually. Worship to God means to take a deep breath, to recognize, to turn your mind, to, to let your mind sit on the fact that God, God isn't faint or weary with you. The same God who met you on the mountaintop at a youth revival some decades ago is still the same God who loves you and whose eyes are on you daily now. We worship Him because He's eternal. We worship because He's creator. Worship because He's creator means I understand and embrace the fact that, guess what? He loves and values you. He has given you an identity as an image bearer. If you're in Christ, you have the ability to be restored into that image and live it out. Yet how many of us, myself included, walk around in woe is me-ism? I'm so bad, why would God ever want to put up with me-ism? God doesn't want to talk with me. Look at all the ways I'm just an absolute mess up. Every one of those things is a disgusting failure to not worship Him who is our Creator. If we're going to worship, it means so much more than just the songs we sing. If we're going to worship, we recognize who He is. If we're going to worship, we, we meditate on who He is. If we're going to worship, we submit to who He is at what He says. Because at the heart of of worship, of recognizing He is worthy, He is glorious, He is holy, He is almighty, He is eternal, He is creator. At the heart of that worship is to prostrate myself in surrender and say, not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. Church family, the key to overcoming is worship. The aim of this vision is to encourage us as the people of God to persevere by worshiping the one who sits on the throne. Let me tell you how one person put it. Our affairs rest in the hands not of men but of God. 
Hence, when the world is enkindling the flames of hatred and slaughter, and when the earth is drenched with blood, may our tear-dimmed eyes catch a vision of the throne in heaven which rules the universe. In the midst of trial and tribulation, may our gaze be riveted upon the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of the lords, because he is worthy. And church family, May we be an overcoming church, but may we be an overcoming church because we are a church that first and foremost and solely as believers is all about the worship of our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you today. May we look to you in worship. May we surrender to you. Fears maybe that we've sought control over, and we surrender to you plans and purposes maybe we've worshiped. Lord, may we worship you today. Not just today, but may our lives be lives of worship. Jesus, this passage just reminds me that I can't possibly fathom what it is like to be in your presence So, Lord, may we not take lightly your call to worship today. Jesus, you know how you're stirring each and every heart. For those that need to come to you in repentance and faith and be saved, may they do so. For those of my brothers and sisters, if there's any sin we need to confess or someone we need to go encourage or whatever it may be, prayer we need to seek, may we do so. Jesus, may you be worshiped. It's in your name I pray.